Hey, Fallen listeners. Today, we want to introduce you to a new show made by two of our friends, Crimelines and Consequences. It's a new podcast that takes true crime cases and uses them as a springboard to talk about larger issues in true crime. Crimelines and Consequences is co-hosted by Eric, a victim's advocate, and Charlie, a true crime writer. They bring their different perspectives to each case. In their first episode, they discussed the impact of social media on cases as they explored the case of missing Idaho toddler Dior Coons. Upcoming topics include missing and murdered Indigenous women, hidden abuse, and bail reform. Eric and Charlie are often joined by guests who share the cases that have stuck with them or made them think. Recently, they were joined by Kristen Seavey of Murder, She Told, another friend of the fall line, to discuss the disappearance of Reeves Johnson. Once a forgotten cold case, Kristen's interest in Reeves' case exposed thousands of new people to the case, and she has since officially joined the police investigation. While you listen to Crimelines and Consequences episode on Reeves Johnson, follow Crimelines and Consequences in your favorite podcast app. If you prefer videos, check them out on YouTube. On Thursday, February 3rd, 1983, Reeves Johnson worked his final shift at Donley. He was working the morning shift and he was expected to be off by 3.30 that afternoon. Nobody knew that this was the last time that he would ever be seen again. I'm Eric Carter-Landin. And I'm Charlie Worrell. And this is Crime Lines and Consequences. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Miss Kristen Seavey from Murder, She Told. Welcome, Kristen. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Welcome to episode two of Crime Lines and Consequences. We're excited to have you on today. We know that this case is really important to uh, to you and to his family, and uh, there's a lot that we want to get into on this. But before that, how's everyone doing today? I'm doing great. You know, you might hear some pitter-patter of rain, maybe a thunder clap, but hopefully no tornado sirens tonight. That is the hope. So hopefully you can experience our Midwest spring in kind of an atmospheric way and not in like a take cover way. Let's let's cross our fingers for that. <laughs> Kristen, how are you doing today? You know, we had kind of an exciting day. I mean, not exciting for some people, but um, I guess neighborhood excitement. There's been a lot going on. Um, there was a fire today, a really bad fire. Um, oh my gosh. And of course, the whole town like calls each other up. And my dad was like, Kristen, can you go figure out what's going on? So we went down <laughs> and watched this like four alarm fire. It was huge. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, luckily, everyone got out safe and all of that. So that was good. But yeah, I mean, it's sad to see stuff like that happen. But there's a, a lot of excitement in the neighborhood mm -hmm. when things happen. It's kind of quiet up there in Maine. It is. Well, I don't want to be rude, but enough with the small talk. We uh, we need to get onto the case. This, there's more important things to talk about. So, Kristen, can you tell me a little bit about Reeves, who Reeves was, and whatever you can share about his life? So, Reeves Johnson grew up in the Philadelphia area, his sister Sally spoke with us at length. Um, we spent quite a bit of time with his siblings. And she said that her father could have picked anywhere in the world, pretty much, 
that he wanted to raise the kids and he chose Philadelphia. And so the kids were raised in Philadelphia, much to um, Sally's chagrin. He got offers to like move overseas, didn't he? Mm -hmm. And decided Philadelphia is where it is at. California, Tokyo, and he (laughs) just loved Philly. So they, they ended up in Philly. Reeve's siblings describe him as kind of philosophical. Like he kind of kept to himself. He was a thinker. He was a reader. He had these zingers. His brother, Hugh, specifically remembers these zingers. And he had like a wicked dry sense of humor, which is a very Northeast term, wicked dry. (laughs) And they would also just have these really in-depth conversations. Um, His father was also very philosophical and really encouraged talking at the dinner table and questioning things and not just going along with what your neighbor was saying, but explaining why you believe that. So he really challenged his thinking growing up. And I think that that really cultivated a lot of curiosity in Reeves. But he was also just a very smart person, too. So he he grew up reading books like um, A Wrinkle in Time, and he loved the Peanuts comics and Italo Calvino, just very like, I don't know, books that make you think, um, that have these wild worlds and like fantasy and just a lot of colorful descriptions. So that's kind of how he grew up. Um, They were a very active family. And when he was a young adult, he was early decision to Trinity College in Connecticut, which is just a small liberal arts college. Um, He got excellent grades throughout school, except for his senior year, they started to drop off. And, you know, he did fine through college, but then there was a, a period where they started to completely tank, which is completely out of character for Reeves. In his third year, he went and studied abroad in Italy for a semester. And then when he came back, he was a totally different person in a different way than you would imagine. He had hypoglycemia. And at the time in the 70s, this was a a novel diagnosis. They knew nothing about it. And so he was coming back and he ended up having to drop out of college, but he was sleeping a lot. He was losing weight. He was just very pale and he would shake and I mean like sleeping 85% of the day. I really can't imagine getting that diagnosis in the 1970s because my daughter's been diagnosed with reactive hypoglycemia and she was diagnosed a year ago. She presented a lot of the same symptoms you're talking about. She had the fatigue, the shaking, she passed out on the soccer field because as you know, When you're exercising, your blood sugar drops. Well, if you're already low, it's going to drop dangerously low. We had all these workups done on her and her blood sugar just stayed low. And it's still, it's always low, but we've been able to treat it, you know, largely with diet, which I believe is how they tried to treat it in the seventies. But when I mention hypoglycemia to people, I think their reaction is, okay, well then she just needs to eat more often and she'll be fine. And it's like, no, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it can be a lot more dangerous than that. Um, On Crime Lines, I recently covered a case of a woman who slipped into a coma after a hypoglycemic incident and her husband got charged with murder. Obviously, since it's on Crime Lines, (laughs) he was charged with murder. But a lot of, one of the reasons I wanted to cover it was because I don't think people understand how dangerous reactive hypoglycemia is and how it completely changes your life. 
Yeah, I mean that he was a completely different person. And at the time, they didn't really have a diagnosis for hypoglycemia. So he he just he had to drop out of school to figure out what happened and what was happening. And he moved back with his parents and they would take him to doctors, psychologists, and you know, people were like, Well, he's on drugs. And he wasn't on drugs. I feel like he was he was kind of profiled based on his appearance and like his liberal college right. that he went to. Like, oh, well, you, mm -hmm. 1970s, you're at Trinity and you have long hair. You're clearly on drugs when when he wasn't. Yeah, it, it was a big struggle. And then I think, too, you know, his his parents expected a lot out of him. He was one of those kids where he had such a bright future especially back then, you know, your parents are, are products of the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. You have a kid who is being set up for success, who is extremely smart, and then all of a sudden is just diving off the deep end. And I think that all of this too is compounded by the depression of not really having control of your life mm -hmm. for something that you don't even know why it's happening. Right. And the doctors are just like, well, you know, he's on drugs or try this thing or try that. And, you know, he had to move back in with his parents. And I mean, I know that that's not like I met my parents, but like, you know, there's a pandemic. <laughs> but back then, I feel like it was a lot different. That must have been really hard on him to kind of go from being really on top of everything and really in control of his future. And then suddenly he gets this wrench thrown in him and he has to has to move in with his family. I, I just can't imagine how challenging and how emotional that must have been for him. And this is like what they say is the best parts of your life, you know, mm -hmm. like your early teens or uh, not early teens, your early 20s mm -hmm. and mid 20s. And this is just completely taking over his life so that he is a shell of a person. I think it was a really rough few years for him, for his family, just not knowing what to do. So in his late 20s, he finally got this under control. You know, they had a diagnosis for it, and he ended up moving to Kittery, Maine in 1978. His sister Sally lived nearby in Cape Nettick, so at least there was some family nearby, so it makes sense as to why he landed there. Um, he lived in a small cabin on Jewett Court, which no longer exists. And then he started taking classes at Donnelly Manufacturing, which they did sheet metal work. Um, so he started taking classes as a welder. The last time that Hugh and Sally saw their brother was at Christmas of 1982 at their parents' home in Philly. At that point, Sally had moved away. So for the last few years, Reeves had been alone in Maine without any family nearby because her husband's job sent them down to Georgia. I guess this is kind of a, a point of interest for a lot of people. On his way back to Maine, he actually picked up a hitchhiker on the Verrazano Bridge in New York City, and this hitchhiker's name is Richard. Richard said that he was either going to Detroit, Michigan or Ontario, which isn't in the direction of Kittery at all, but he ended up going to Kittery with Reeves, and Reeves just kind of didn't ask him, like, where can I drop you off? He just went back to his home because Reeves was like that. So he gave him a place to stay. But I think after a while, Richard was overstaying his keep a little bit. Like he wasn't 
earning anything. He was bumming cigarettes. He had a key to Reeves' apartment. He had the spare key. And one day he just left. So around January 7th, while Reeves was at work, he mm-hmm. left and he took the spare key with him. Um, so that's a point of interest. About a month later is when things change. So now we're circling back to the introduction. And on February 3rd, 1983, Reeves Johnson worked his final shift at Donnelly Manufacturing. He worked the morning shift, so he would have been done around 3.30 p.m. And this is the last time that we can say that Reeves was reliably seen by people who actually knew him. So there were sightings after this point, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, I I work with the detective on this case, and we don't think that those were actually him. Because if you look at Reeves, I mean, he's got like, you know, the mutton chops, the long hair. He's, you know, 31. He looks like the every white man of the 80s. (laughs) Yeah. So I could easily see how somebody could have confused Mm -hmm. someone else for him. Right. So this gets a little confusing, but I'll go through it as like clearly as I can. That day, on February 3rd, he deposited $70 into his bank account, and he took out $30 in cash, and he purchased a set of guitar strings, Okay, which we don't really know much about that um, as far as the guitar goes, but that's something that we would like to know more of from an investigative standpoint. So they're not sure he played guitar, or? Uh, We think he, I mean, we assume he probably did, but in our minds, we're like, if he played guitar, he probably like, I don't know, went and met up with other people who played music too. So where are those people who might know him? It's, uh, we're thinking of it more on a social aspect, but it also could just be for himself. Okay. Over the next few days, almost all of his valuable belongings were removed from the rental cabin in Kittery. Pretty much everything of value. The only thing that was left behind were some boxes, um, his contact lenses, which he needed to drive and the guitar strings. On Sunday, he missed a weekly call with his family. He would always talk to his parents on Sundays, but at that point, they were out of the country. So his sister Sally was the one who was supposed to be checking in with him. He didn't make any contact, which, I mean, you know, you miss a call, whatever, you just try again later. Sure. Over the next few weeks, though, his bank account was drained to the point of it being overdrawn. We only know about this because we know about the check history and the account history, but all of these transactions weren't discovered until after the account was closed, after the investigation kind of started, um, and all of that. Mm. But these purchases were really out of character for him. He was extremely meticulous. He was very frugal with his money. He always paid his rent first, um, and he didn't really spend a whole lot on his personal, you know, on like himself. I've read all of his letters that he sent his mom, that his mom saved him. And sometimes he'll just list like the things that he bought. And so it's just odd some of these purchases that were made that just don't seem like him at all. And not someone who would overdraw his bank account and not by a little. Didn't he a bunch of checks bounce? A lot. Because back in that day, they had to send the checks into the bank to get them paid. It wasn't instant. So you could bounce quite a few at it before it caught up to you. Yeah. Hmm. I think whoever was using the the checkbook tried to get away with it for as long as possible. 
Um, so that week, there were purchases that were made at Radio Shack at Daymart, which is um, it no longer exists now, I don't think, but it's a um, like a very fancy thermal underwear place. Mm-hmm. Which you know, it's this is in New Hampshire. You have a lot of ski resorts around. Right. Um, Daymart was popular because the Olympics had just happened, and they were a sponsor of the Olympics. So it was a very popular, expensive outerwear brand. And Shaw's, which is a local grocery store. We had a Shaw's when I grew up. That's one of the things I like about your show is just, you know, I grew up in the Northeast, so it kind of brings me back when I hear things like a Shaw's and, you know, you just need like a Caldor and it'll be my childhood all over again. (laughs) Right now it's a Hannaford. I guess that's, there are some Shaw's around, but it's mostly Hannaford. So The first big purchase was on the 4th, which is actually the day after he went missing. So that Friday um, at Shaw's in Stratum, New Hampshire. And this is not his normal grocery store, but it is close to Donnelly Manufacturing, which is in Exeter, New Hampshire. Um, They're pretty close in proximity. And this isn't his grocery store that he shopped at. He would shop at one in Kittery. We don't know if Reeves was scheduled to work that day or not. If he was, he didn't show up. And the purchase was made for about $80, which is about $210 in today's money. That's a lot for one person. Wow. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. For one person, that's a lot of groceries. And like this guy probably doesn't even have a full refrigerator in this cabin. Like These cabins are... Um, we looked through old like city, city directories and they list the residents as transient. So... In my mind, I wouldn't assume that there would even be a full refrigerator. It might just be like a mini fridge. So where are all these? Who are Who's eating these groceries? Right. On Wednesday the 9th, the checkbook purchased two sets of thermal underwear. One was a size small and one was an extra large from Daymart. Both very odd sizes. The following day, $30 was withdrawn from the checking account and $50 was withdrawn from the savings. And Saturday the 12th, a purchase at Radio Shack was made for a set of speakers that cost about $50 in today's, uh, $50 in 1983 money, 130 today. And another deposit was made on at Radio Shack for a $280 car radio system, which that costs $738 in today's money. 